Hey friends, my name is Christine Chapel, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, I chat with Robert Chong about the topic of hard stories and his book, Restoration Story, Why Jesus Matters in a Broken World. For more help on the topic we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Robert Chong serves as the pastor of care at Sojourn Church Midtown in Louisville, Kentucky. He has a passion for helping the church to be confident in Jesus, and he is also the executive director of Gospel Care Ministries, which trains leaders in churches, networks, and mission organizations. In addition to the book we're talking about today, Robert is also the author of God Redeeming His Bride, a handbook for church discipline, and Restore, Changing How We Live and Love. He enjoys life with his wife, Karen, their grown children, and their adorable grandchildren. Hey there, Robert. Thanks so much for joining me for the Hope and Help podcast today. It's great to have you here. Great to be here, Christine. I was so thankful that I got the chance to finally connect with you on this book. It's titled Restoration Story, Why Jesus Matters in a Broken World. And I was just thinking to myself, you know, as I was reading, like how much regret I had because it took me so long to talk to you about this fantastic resource. I felt like as I was reading, you were just speaking my language in the way that you communicate to the readers about the importance of connecting our stories to God's story. And so that's why I'm so excited to be chatting with you today. But before we get started in our conversation, I wonder if you could spend a few minutes sharing why you wanted to write this book. Uh, You know, the first reason for writing the book started about 30 years ago. Uh, My wife at the time was beginning to deal with some things in her story that were really hard. And I I was a new believer and two burning questions Um, just said in my soul, the first question was, how does Jesus make a difference in this situation that seemed impossible to me? And then second, what is the church doing about it? At that moment, in that season of our lives, God opened up my eyes to the brokenness in the church. And where we were, um, the church was simply referring people out. And they were not seeking to help people in the hard parts of their story. And then fast forward about 10 years ago in my first sabbatical, I'm reading 2 Corinthians 3.18, and the Lord just stopped me in my tracks in what it said. It said, Paul was writing, when I behold the glory of the Lord, he changes us from one degree of glory to the next into his image. This is the work of the Lord who is spirit. And I remember pushing away from the desk and asking, Lord, is this how you change us when we behold your glory? Because I was trained up in a very traditional, you know, way of, of counseling, you know, from from biblical counseling ways of looking at the heart, understanding the struggles, and trying to you know apply Jesus to all of that. But as a pastor over the years, I realized that it didn't matter how eloquent I could be, uh, how much scriptures I could read, but the person really needed to see and behold the glory of the Lord and experience His love as well. And so that's what 
prompted me to do a change in how I was equipping the church. Uh, But also we were a part of a church culture in which authenticity, vulnerability, rawness was encouraged. And I noticed that even though that was good and it made for good community, rarely did the conversations go upward to God's story. And so I I wrote the book to help the church to see how they needed to understand and to live in God's story. And the second reason is that over the years, I was a full-time pastor. I was getting paid um, to read and to minister to people, and I could not keep up with all the different books about all the different topics, issues of life, right? And so my prayer over the years was, Lord, help me to distill down the gospel in such a way that your people would be able to live and serve and give you glory uh, by understanding your gospel. And so the second reason for writing the book was I wanted to equip the church to engage in discipleship in such a way that it actually cared for people in all of their hurts, in all of their troubles. So those are the two main goals, reasons for writing the book. Again, just thank you so much for the hard work that you did to put this resource together. I honestly will be referencing this often just because of the the way in which you write and communicate and help readers to understand why God's story matters to them. Like you just said, what does Jesus have to do with this today and what we are going through right now? And I think that is something that we all struggle to remember and think through thoughtfully, especially in the midst of pain and confusion and brokenness. And so, again, couldn't recommend this resource more highly. And I guess building off of that, I'm looking at the book right now and the cover, and we might look at it and say, well, I don't really know why Jesus's story matters in a broken world. So maybe this book isn't for me. Maybe this isn't really relevant because the top, the title doesn't necessarily say, like you said, a particular problem. You know, this isn't a resource on one issue, but our whole life uh, experiences. And so maybe as we just get started in building out this idea that we are all in God's restoration story, could you help us to understand why it is important to see how our hard stories are embedded in God's story of redemption? You know, the, the simple answer is if we don't see our hard stories as part of God's stories, there's no hope. Um, but let me unpack that a little bit more. God's story actually reframes how we see and understand our story. Uh, God's story offers perspective and gives us a sense of purpose in knowing why we're even created and how we're to live. Um, but also, uh, God's story helps us to see that the hard parts of our story, which is connected with the fall, is not all of our story. So, God's story reminds us that there's a bigger, larger, more hope-filled story. And the beautiful part about it is, is when we're able to see the hard parts of our story rooted in the fall, then that's actually good news because the fall is not the end of God's story, as you know, right? But then also what's helpful to wrestle with is the fact that the fall is part of God's story. And so that there comes a lot of discussion with that, and we might get to that later. But, you know, God's story is also all about Jesus, as you know, right? And it's only Jesus who can restore our souls that have been broken by the impact of the fall. And so that's why we can't separate getting help from Jesus from the story that's all about Jesus. And so we have to go to God's story. But then also God's story is the only way 
living in God's story, understanding God's story is the only way that our own stories, our hard stories can be redeemed. So that's, those are just a few reasons why it's important to see that our stories are embedded in God's story. Well, knowing all of that then, Robert, you know, you mentioned in the book that there are two ditches or dangers that might arise if we don't take the time to reflect as you guide us here in the book. Yeah, the first ditch that I talk about is endless preoccupation. And in one sense, we're on this never-ending quest to understand who we are, why do we do the things we do, and the prevailing culture convinces us that we can find that answer in our story. So we rightly go to our stories and look at our stories, but if we fail to look beyond our story, we're going to be on this endless journey. And the illustration I give is like a dog chasing his tail and go around in circle and circles. Uh, but the second pit that or ditch that we can fall into is endless distraction. I find this to be the norm within the church. Life is so busy. There's so many things to do with work, family, recreation, etc. But in one sense, it's easier to avoid the hard things. And so with distractions, we can find ourselves avoiding or running away from the significant context through which God actually wants to grow us and to change us and to make us more dependent upon Him. And so it's just super important that uh, we, we take the time to work through our stories in light of God's stories. And I suggest that it's actually working through our stories within God's story is actually one of the most significant parts of how we can engage in spiritual warfare that's not really talked about within the church. And so we, we talk about so many other things, but uh, for some reason, the church can shy away from people's stories because as one pastor shared with me in all honesty, he said, I don't ask people their stories because I'm afraid of what they might tell me. And given what they share with me, I'm afraid I won't know how to respond. And I believe that God created us, um, as, as we hear from the culture, to be known, to be seen, to be understood. And why is it oftentimes that that doesn't happen in the church, but oftentimes we find that in therapy? So um, those are just a couple of ditches that I addressed in the book. Yeah, that's so helpful to think through. And I love how you brought up the spiritual warfare component, because I agree. I don't think that that's something that we often reflect on. As you were talking, I remembered a quote you had on page 91, where you say, we need to remember that our struggles are not ultimately against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And that's from Ephesians 6, 12. And so just that reminder all throughout the book that evil is not just found in the sin in our own hearts, but also in the broader world and the story that we are in. So thank you for pointing that out, because it is an important part of the book. And I know we'll talk a little bit more about Satan's involvement, I think, here in just a bit. But also throughout the book, I appreciated how you really boil this concept down to some, some practical, tangible realities. And you talk about the four major movements of God's story, and you help readers to apply those realities to their own stories. So let's, let's go a little bit more deep and specific here. Can you explain what those four major movements are in God's story and offer a brief overview of how that makes a difference in our lives? Absolutely. Let me let me give some backstory to that. 
as a pastor, one of the things that I was asked most often uh, was not about creation. Uh, we talked a lot about the fall. Um, people knew that Jesus lived a life that we couldn't live and died the death that we deserved. They, so they understood the cross uh, and they understood heaven. Uh, but the question that I would get over and over again is, Pastor, how does Jesus make a difference now? And so that was an impetus for me to really wrestle with this. Uh, but then all, even one of our seasoned leaders, as I was unpacking this, and this really came about when, as I told you after my first sabbatical, um, how do I help people to see the glory of God and experience his love? And up until then, I was training listening skills, how to ask questions, how to understand the struggles of the heart. Um, but then the Lord directed me to say, hey, just help them to see my glory and experience my love throughout my story. And so as I explained in the book, God's story is actually a story of love. And I think we can all see very readily that God's love, his love is a primary theme in the scriptures. And so I try to follow that theme all throughout his story, starting with creation. Creation shows us how God created us for love. He created us to love him and he created us to love one another. And that's the, that's the origins of the two great commandments, right? The two great love commands. But the creation story also reveals God's love for us in that he created us to experience the love that the father has for the son. But he created us out of love in his image. He also created us out of love to enjoy communion with him, where we can actually know him, experience him, and image him as well. And then also from creation, it's the origins of our identity and purpose in life. And so if we miss the creation story elements, um, we, we start off in confusion. Oftentimes, we can start with the fall because life is hard, right? Um, but <clears throat> I'm suggesting that creation has to be the foundation from which we understand the fall. Because one of the things that's significant that we can draw from creation you know, what was the one thing that God told Adam and Eve not to do in the garden? He told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so from that, we can understand that God did not create us to know and experience evil. And so as a direct result of them disobeying God, evil has overpowered us and overwhelms us um, ever since then, right? But again, God, God knows this. But as a result... Of, of the fall, and like you suggested, the fall is much more, it goes much more beyond just behavior um, but it, in external circumstances, but there's a spiritual realm that's battling the, the spirit of God, the kingdom of God. But the fall also shows us how we can experience common struggles, right? Even though each of us are individuals, unique DNA, unique stories, and we experience our lives in unique ways, we have common struggles. The fall has impacted all of us in common ways. But also the fall explains why we have bodily struggles as well. We're made body and soul. And so when something is um, struggling, I mean, impacting our souls, it's going to impact our bodies and vice versa. But it also explains why, why relationships are hard, right? Every one of us are being impacted by the fall. But then it's, uh, it explains why we have even struggles in our relationship with God. Um, so faith struggles. But then, as you suggest, it talks about the schemes of the enemy, our spiritual warfare, how Satan loves to deceive us, distract us, discourage us, and divide 
that which God wants together. And so as the people of God begin to understand these things, they begin to go, oh, I never understood these things before. Some, a real simple example, but common example is that people would say, I didn't realize that fear can be connected to the fall. My anxiety, my worries about what might happen in the future or my despair that because of things that have happened in the past. So God's story begins to reorient them and reframe how they see life. So we have creation that shows us how God created us for love. I forgot to mention that the fall shows us how evil keeps us from love. And one theologian said at the moment of the fall, love imploded upon itself. Instead of loving God, we love ourselves. Instead of loving others, we love ourselves the most. And so that self-love, and I would suggest also that self-glory is at the heart of our fallen nature. The third movement of God's story is redemption, where it shows us how God, how Jesus restores us with love. Um, the redemption story reminds that God didn't create and redeem us and then left us alone. Redemption shows that God actually not only saves us, but he brings us into union with Christ, but also he pours out his love into our hearts through his spirit, as stated by Romans 5.5. But then another beautiful fact that redemption reminds us is that Jesus and the spirit of God are actually praying for us without ceasing. And so how often in the dark parts of our lives and the heartache and the brokenness do we remember that Jesus and the Son of God are praying for us because we can be very prayerless, right, when we're struggling and suffering. But also the most beautiful part that I'll just highlight right now is that the redemption story actually shows us how Christ came not only to reconcile us back into right relationship with God. That's huge, right? He brings us back into communion with God that was broken by sin. But the part that I think the church is learning about more and more is that Jesus came not only to reconcile us, but to restore us. Every Christian will tell you, I know that God will restore me fully in heaven. But what they fail to recognize that in the present, Jesus is making a difference as he's restoring our souls. And so that's why um, as we look at all the way back in Isaiah 61, that's the part of the scroll that Jesus read in Luke chapter 4 when he went to the synagogue. And he read the part of the scroll that said, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then as the text continues, it says he's rolled up the scroll, put it down and said, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he drops the mic right there in the synagogue, right? And so what the reason why that's part of the story is important is because Jesus and the Father and the Son, you know, the Trinitarian God, according to Psalm 139, verse 16, they knew every day of our lives before we even formed. And what that means is they knew every way in which the sin and the fall would impact us in every way in the past, present, and future. But if you combine that with Ephesians 1.4, that God chose us before the foundations of the world, that brings really big hope. That not only did Jesus come to reconcile us, but he, knowing all the things that he knows about our days before they were even formed, and knowing that he would adopt us into his family and, and bring us into union with himself, we have got to understand that there's nothing that we have experienced in our stories that has caught God by surprise.
And there's no hardships or heartaches that we've experienced that makes God anxious. Instead, he said, I knew about those things. So I sent the son from heaven into the fall to make a way for you not only to be brought back in the right relationship, but for your good shepherd to restore your soul. So that's that's a huge part, right, of the story is redemption and it's ongoing. But the end of God's story, God is so kind to help us to see the end of God's story. It's not a fairy tale ending, but it's a supernatural ending in which all things will be made new. But one thing I love about this is that God, God shows us in creation how he created us to live. In consummation, he's showing us how we will live forever. And so you can think of creation and consummation as bookends or guardrails to help us to understand how to live in between. And as you know, life is confusing. And oftentimes we don't know up from down. But if we remember all of God's story, we will have um, not only wisdom, but also direction in how we are to make sense of life and how to live life in a way that, that trusts God and remembers that he is a good God. So that's a big picture response to your question. Yes, and thank you for taking the time to explain it. Of course, you go into even more detail in the book, but just for our purposes, the fact that you were able to so succinctly explain those four movements uh, is amazing. So thank you (laughs) for doing that for us. Very helpful. Uh, But at the same time, I think before you were talking about those four movements, I think you mentioned the reality that God's story is a love story. And I know that if somebody is walking through a hard story today— that might be hard for them to hear. I appreciate that in the book, even though you do talk a lot about how God's story is a love story, that you anticipate a common sentiment that someone might have in relation to the pain of their story and the love of God. You write that quote, it may be that you're pushing back on the reality that God is love. It doesn't seem to correspond with what you've experienced in your story. So, Robert, how do you help people to fit the reality of God's love into the reality of their hard story? Yeah, you know, it, as you know, Christine, you can't do that in one sitting. Uh, but what you can do is you can give an overview and give vision of where you're going. Uh, and so one of the things that I think is, 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 is hugely important is for you to first understand their story, their reality. Um, God knows it. God God already knows, as I told you, that he sees and knows and understands and hears and acts, right? Um, But it's important that you understand their story, their reality, their struggles in such a way that you can offer God's truths and his promises in very personal and intentional ways. The next thing that I would do is to help them to look up. They will appreciate you taking the time to listen and understand the details of their story, uh, but th- but you just can't stay there, right? So you, you need to help them to look up to see that they live in a bigger reality. Uh, but then as you're helping them to look up and explaining the, the four movements, as I've shared about God's story of love, you need to then begin to take what they shared with you and locate it within God's story, as I mentioned before, all the hard, hurtful parts of the story. Hopefully they can see by the Spirit of God that they're all rooted in in the fall. And by doing so, it begins to reframe how they see their story. But most importantly, it begins to reframe how they see their God. 
because when we're in pain and covered with confusion, we tend to distort how we see and understand God. But when that pain and, conf- and heartache is located and given reason or understanding and explanation by the fall, there's a supernatural um, separation that begins to happen. Um, they begin to be free now to be able to see that God is still good, even though life is hard. And one of the things that we teach is that it's really important reminder, as we see by God's story, that two realities can be true at the same time. Yes, we're living in the fall and life is hard and God never minimizes our stories. But at the same time, we're living in Christ. And so God's story is hugely important because, like I said, God doesn't minimize our stories, but he doesn't want us to minimize his story. And it's in his story is where we actually find help and hope. Uh, aptly um, name for your podcast. Uh, <laughs> but it, it's a beautiful thing. So after reframing, then I would help them to abide in Christ through the word. Because again, like I said, I learned over the years that as a pastor, I could say all these truths about the gospel, but they need to hear God speak to them directly from his word. And so by abiding in Christ, they begin to experience their God and hear God speak to them and, and experience their God and his love for them. And they begin to rest. Um, their souls begin to settle. And now they're beginning to be more open to talking about this God of love and even to follow this God of love that they may have believed that he was not a good God or he didn't love them. As you were talking, I was reminded of something I think I've mentioned a number of times here on the podcast, but, and I get these terms from Elizabeth Elliot in her book, Suffering is Never for Nothing, but in that, and I know I've said this before, so podcast listeners, please be patient, but I love, because it's so relevant to what you just said of the reality that, you know, in, in her book, she talks about that there are you know, the terrible truths of this world, in this world we live in, there are actual terrible truths that we have to contend with in our stories, right? But that the gospel presents us with wonderful facts as well. You know, we're not just stuck in the terrible truths of the fall, but we have the wonderful facts of that you've mentioned of, of the creation, of the redemption, and of the consummation, you know, and, and that's where we find our and locate our hope. But I love even thinking too, Robert, what you said helped me to ponder of the reality that Jesus in his story has a story full of terrible truths, you know, and that the God that we serve and love and worship, he wasn't content just to sit up there in the heavens and be indifferent to his people's suffering, but he willingly took on the hardest story of them all and suffered on our behalf, terrible truth, so that we could have the hope of the wonderful facts of the gospel, which is, I think, something that is important to reflect on when we consider the pain and confusion and the doubts and the questions that we wrestle with as we are processing our hard story. Yeah, that's a great point, Christine. And what you just said explains why he's the perfect high priest. Um, Because oftentimes we can locate Jesus especially in church circles where there's a lot of cliches, we can locate Jesus as a Sunday school answer. But as you reminded us, uh, when we consider that Jesus experienced all the troubles and the trauma that we could ever experience, but yet he did not sin, yet he remained faithful, yet he continued to trust in his Father, he provides us the example as the perfect human being that there is hope 
in the midst of the brokenness. But it, it also speaks to the love of our God, the Son of God, to be able to endure willingly these things for us so that he can empathize with us so that He, because he's the God of compassion, right? And so the more we can do to help God's people to know that God is not aloof, he's not unsympathetic, but he is moved by what moves you. He weeps outside the gates of Jerusalem, right? just brokenhearted that they're not receiving him and recognizing him. Uh, so that's, I think that's part of the bigger challenge and struggle that we can face when we're caring for people is to overcome the distortion of how people see and understand and even experience their God. Well, I also appreciate, Robert, that in the book you touch on the reality that when we're in the midst of a hard story or we're trying to work through it, you write that we have an urge to do whatever it takes to relieve the pain or get even or pull away from everyone. So you're you're talking and exploring about our responses mm-hmm. to our hard stories and kind of the temptation that we might feel to escape or avoid or numb or mm-hmm. isolate because we are wrestling and, and struggling to wrestle with our brokenness and questions and confusion. And so how does God's story help the person who feels like these urges are a regular part of their response to the hardships they face? You know, I believe, Christine, that, again, that's where the fall comes into play and so helpful, is that it reminds us that evil will always be stronger than us. Evil will always take what is good and damage it, right, distorts it. I think that one thing that's really helpful, as I mentioned before, that that God knows all these things about us. He's never caught off guard. He's never anxious. Uh, but I think the question that you posed, let me just first uh, answer by saying that it's our broken human tendency to do whatever we think that we will and to get what we think we need. Right. And so, um, like you said, that we can do whatever it takes to relieve the pain or get even or pull away from everybody, because that's our natural inclination is to take care of ourselves. But it takes a supernatural work of God to pull us beyond ourselves. And so that's where the, the story is helpful as well, is because if you remember in the diagram, um, you know, our story is at the bottom of the diagram, but then you have the overarching story of God above and in between the cloud coverage, right? And the cloud coverage is meant to remind us that we live in spiritual warfare. But when we're living below the cloud, so to speak, it can seem as if God is not around, that he doesn't care. So we're left to ourselves. For those who haven't read the book, let me let me explain the cloud illustration real quick. Uh, if you go into the airport on any rainy day, you can't see the sun, right? Um, but what happens when you board the plane, the plane takes off and punches through the clouds? What do you see? You see the sun, right? But if you look out the window and down, you still see the clouds. So that's a really simple example to remind us that even though we're in deep darkness, pain and confusion, uh, that God is still there. And so it's it's important to remember that we live in a much bigger reality. But another question that often comes up is why, why did not God do something about it? You know, if he's, if he's all powerful, why didn't he stop it? Why didn't he do something? You know, these are really tough questions, right? And the answers to these questions will not be totally answered on this side of heaven. Um, But the things that we have to remember is that God did do something. As you already said, he sent the sun from heaven into the fall. And also, even though he doesn't answer all of our questions, here's an important point. 
that we need to remember. He doesn't give us all the answers, but he gives us all of himself. And so that's where we can find ourselves struggling. God, are you enough for me? And ultimately, the question that I'm trying to get the church to answer, ask and answer as well is, what care do I actually need right now? And I want to suggest to you that the care that we actually need right here and now in a broken world existed before the fall. It's God himself, his presence, his power, his provisions, his promises, uh, relationships that he's given to us and his word he speaks to us. So that's for another conversation. Uh, But uh, those are just some responses to your question. I think that segues really well into the next question because, you know, we've been talking a lot about Jesus these last few minutes and, and that's no accident, you know, in, in the book, you're very clear that, uh, and I love the term that you use, you call it a reference point and you re- reiterate that phrase often, but you talk about, you know, the reality that sometimes our reference point in, in life is our emotions or thoughts or desires, but mm-hmm. you help us to reflect on the importance of Jesus becoming the reference point of every aspect of our hard story. So can you explain what you mean by that and and what happens, you know, when he's not our reference point? Yeah. What I mean by the term reference point, it's the lens through which we see and understand life. For example, if you've heard people or yourself say, why do bad things always happen to me? That's a phrase that's coming out of a person's perspective that They've experienced a lot of bad things happening, right? But they can wrongly believe that it's only happening to me and nobody else. Uh, Or a phrase like, I can't trust anybody. Love hurts too much. And it might be, for instance, that they've experienced their parents' divorce. Their parents always told them that they loved them, but yet they could not keep their marriage together. Another example how our lives and experience can um, serve as a reference point is like forgiveness, right? If you've been hurt or offended by somebody, we generally use ourselves as the reference point. Like, it's my perspective. You did what I didn't want you to do. You hurt my feelings or you offended me and I will never forgive you because of what you've done to me. But segueing to why is it important for Jesus to be that reference point, especially when it comes to forgiveness, is very easy, is that Number one, Jesus starts out with love, right? He loved us by dying for us. He loved us by forgiving us. And so that's why in Ephesians 4, 32, you know, he said, love, forgive one another just as I have forgiven you. And so by making Jesus our reference point, it's fighting against our natural tendency described in the book of Judges, is that our tendency is to do what's right in our own eyes. And we're fallen, right? We, we will do whatever it takes to protect ourselves, to love ourselves. Um, but God says, no, I got you protected. I love you. So look at Jesus and follow him uh, because you're created in our image. And by, by living the way that you, I've created you to live, you actually will live a fuller and flourishing life. And so that is a, a short answer to your question. But if we don't make Jesus our reference point, our, our reality will never make sense. We're going to remain confused about life and about God and about relationships. And here's probably something that's most significant. We will not experience his love and his comfort and his peace. 
Robert, in the book, there are a lot of different questions that you anticipate the reader might be asking as they're combing through the pages. And a few of them, I thought, really stood out to me. And so I wanted to be sure we address them here in this conversation. You write, quote, If Jesus holds everything together, why does our world sometimes fall apart? Where is Jesus when dreams shatter, marriages fail, and diseased or aging bodies break down? These are just some a couple of really, the, I think, the questions I, all of our listeners can, can relate to in one way, shape, or form. And so can you help us to think realistically and biblically about these questions? Yeah, this is, as you know, this is a bigger discussion that might be associated with the problem of evil. Um, but as we think through this question in light of God's story, remember that God knows all these things ahead of time. All of the things that you mentioned in terms of dream-shattering marriages failing, diseased or aging bodies, God knew these things would happen to us. And it would be unloving of God if he were to send his son from heaven into the fall just to merely bring us back into right relationship with him, but not do anything about these life-changing situations that impact us deeply. Uh, and and uh, in, in hard ways, right? And so going back to what I've shared earlier, uh, God actually does something about these things, even though he's not holding our world together the way that we imagine, ultimately he is and that he's sustaining us and keeping us so that we he can usher us into the new heavens and the new earth. But then also, we can wrongly believe that God is not answering our prayers if the things that we're asking for or praying about doesn't come about as we asked. Instead, God offers us promises that are yes in Christ. And this is where, in order to answer the question in a broad way, it's helpful to allow God's story to, to reframe how we understand our struggles and maybe even to reframe the questions that we're even asking, because such questions tend to be focused mainly on us and not about God, mainly on our story and not his story. And so it's really important to broaden out and to be anchored in God's story. A question like, you know, where is Jesus in all this, right? We have to remember because we are in Christ, we're always living in his presence. And how often do we remember that, right? Why doesn't God answer my prayers? Well, God promises to do everything and exactly what we need in our brokenness and pain, but it may not align with what we want, right? But God promised that he has given us everything we need for life and godliness, as you know from First, Second Peter 1, through his divine power, his great and precious promises, and participate in his divine nature. So to bring this answer to a close, let me just sum up by saying that our questions need to be informed by everything that God promises us, but also the things that we need has to be considered to be offered through God's presence, through the presence of Christ, through the promises of Christ, and through the power of Christ. And just know that our questions will not be all answered on this side of heaven. But as I said before, but God has given all of himself to us and says, I am with you. And I know your dreams are shattered. I know your marriage is falling apart. But the bigger story is that God is in the business of taking what's meant for evil and using it for good. 
And so that's why you hear stories, Christine, or people who experience horrific trauma and deep, deep loss, how they might say that they would never write these things into their story on their own. But now that it's happened, they never will edit it out of their story because of how God used it to bring them into a deeper relationship with him and how they've experienced his love in ways they've never imagined. Well, we've got time for a couple of more questions. And so I want to bring it for a few minutes back to the local church. We are the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship. And so our mission is to equip the local church in one another care. And so I'd love to invite you to share maybe some practical ways that the local church could support and care for those who find themselves in the thick of a hard story. You know, Christine, I think that the primary thing that the church needs to be remembered is that it's God's vision for the church to do exactly what you just said, to step into the hard parts of people's stories. Unfortunately, without the training, without being equipped, many times church leaders can feel ill-equipped to do so. So they shy away from it, as I shared in the story. But as David Powelson mentioned in his article, Cure of Souls, he says, essentially, the church's priority is to articulate a positive biblical truth, a systematic practical theology of those things that our culture labels as counseling issues. And so therefore, what I believe, uh, God's story and, and his two great love commands serve as a robust and reproducible framework for discipleship that addresses these issues that we call counseling issues. The reason why we need a robust and reproducible framework is because uh, we need a framework that never changes so that once you teach something to somebody, you don't keep adding on and keep changing, but you, you just keep going deeper with it. But a framework that never changes, but applies to every person and to every situation. And by doing so, the church has a chance of making disciples who actually care for one another as they disciple people. And when they care for them, they're actually discipling people. And so I think that those are, first of all, the the main thing that a church needs to do is understand the framework that will help and offer hope to people in a broken world. Next thing they need to do is to actually equip people. It's not uncommon for a church to offer programs, but they may lack on actually equipping the saints to engage in gritty gospel ministry. And that has been relegated to counseling, whether it be counseling in the church or counseling outside the church. Uh, But then even more important as part of discipleship, the church needs to practically teach people how to abide in Christ. Because I suggest that abiding in Christ should be the focus, the means, and the goal for ministry, thus discipleship and care. So teaching them how to receive the word, how to hear God speak to them from his word, how to experience God in their hearts and souls as they experience God's heart, how to pray the word. Um, Oftentimes people will say that instead of praying to God for how he can help them, that they've learned that praying the word actually shows them how God is actually caring for them and promises to help them in times of trouble. But then also living out the word, as John 15 reminds us, Jesus says, you can do nothing apart from me. So practically, how to abide in Christ, I believe, is the pivot uh, for how the church can most practically help people deal with the hard parts of their lives and their stories. Uh, But there's a lot more to be unpacked. 
Thank you so much. We've got one more special question. And this is something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening today who is in the midst of walking through a hard story. What would you say to this person to encourage them with the hope and help of Jesus Christ? I can't do better than Psalm 23. So what I would say is the Lord is your shepherd. You have what you need. He makes you lie down in green pastures. He leads you beside still waters. He restores your soul. He leads you along the right paths for his namesake. And even when you walk through the darkest valley, you will fear no evil, for God is with you. His rod and staff, they comfort you. He prepares a table before you in the presence of your enemies. He anoints your head with oil. Your cup overflows. Surely his goodness and faithful love pursues you all the days of your life, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Thank you so much for reading that scripture for us, Robert. If there's someone listening today who wants to to get connected with you and your ministry, where can they go to find you online? Yeah, they can simply type in gospel.care. And it'll take us to the website, take them to the website, or feel free also to email me at robert at gospel.care. Awesome. Well, if you are interested in diving into this excellent book, I highly recommend that you get a copy. I will be revisiting it time and time again. And so if you want to get that link, you can scroll down into the show notes, click the link there, and that will take you to a page on IBCD's website where you can access all of that information. Well, thanks again, Robert, for joining us for this helpful conversation today. We went through some hard things, but also some hopeful things. And so I hope that it was a blessing to our listeners. Thank you, Kristen. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for joining us for today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.